It's 11.07. Glad to have you with us. Coming up in about 15 minutes, Dave Rowland, MoFreedom.org. Should election authorities publish the records of individual votes? That sounds very intriguing, and we're going to find out what that's all about uh, with Dave Rowland. Uh, it may not be what you think, but we'll find out. In the meantime, we kick off this segment of the program, as we always do on Think Tank Thursday, with Mike Murphy from Como Buzz with one Z, ComoBuzz.com. We were talking about the mayor and her uh, trip to Dubai, and I thought, Mike, welcome. Glad to have you with us. Thanks. Good to be here. But I thought you explained to me last uh, last time we chatted that this money might be coming from China? No. No. We got to keep our trips straight. Okay. okay. So earlier this summer, she goes to New York for a while. That was paid for by Bloomberg. Bloomberg has a foundation, and he's got a partnership with Harvard, and they bring in mayors to to train them. So that was earlier in the summer. Then she went up to Wisconsin with a, a contingent of other city folks, an annual trip. Now, the city paid twenty grand for that, but that's been going on for a long time. That's part of the, a Chamber of Commerce thing that they, they go visit a, a, a like city uh, every, every fall. So now, that, now where the confusion begins is in November, she actually went to China. She spent 10 days in China, uh-huh. and she was who paid for that trip was this U.S. Heartland China Association, and they're the uh, uh, Chinese sympathizers who are, are, are widely uh, connected to uh, uh, believe to play this role with the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to influence local mayors and officials. So there's, there's warnings. It's not really a political thing. It's from both sides. Uh, it's not a partisan thing. There's a lot of warning out there. And that's what I documented in a story a couple of weeks ago is uh, uh, there's a lot of warning that uh, mayors and local officials should beware that um, these people are affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party and looking to influence uh, uh, American uh, officials at the subnational level. That was paid for by this uh, U.S. Uh, Heartland China Association. Now, a couple weeks later here, she's off to Dubai. Uh, and that's being paid for by the U.S. Conference of Mayors. She's one of a delegation of six mayors uh, who's uh, being paid for, sponsored by the U.S. Conference of Mayors to go over there to this uh, to the United Nations annual summit that you were just just talking about to talk about global warming what? yeah yeah it's, 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 it's a trade on Colombia and, and well what's kind of funny is we picture you know uh, thousands of people from across the world jetting into Dubai to uh, talk about solutions for uh, to uh, slow global warming yeah Mike we all know how <laughs> the folks in Dubai and Saudi Arabia and all those other yeah. countries don't want to sell oil. I mean, it's it's a well known fact. So uh, she's uh, apparently she's now. I've been. I, I, I do. I do want to share. I could share. People wonder what in the heck is the mayor of Columbia, you know, doing on these trips, and, and especially we could go through a litany of issues that you know are left to be solved right here at home. But I think the mayor is a bit of a, a celebrity in this field uh, because she, in her ten years uh, as a uh, employee at City Hall, she was the. Um, director of the office, the city's office of sustainability. Don't ask me to explain it. I think you know what it means. It's uh, yeah, okay. So it starts out. There's a grant, you know, and they and they hire her. Well, as typically goes, 
this thing grew into a department, and uh, I looked up, and in 2023, it now has five employees and a $650,000 a year budget. But that all being said, the crowning achievement was in 2000, and I think between 19 and 21, um, they produced, her office produced a uh, sweeping 106-page document that's called the city's Climate Action and Adaptation Plan. And the, uh, uh, all parts of the city's business looks, is conducted through the lens of this plan to the point that every department in its 286-page annual budget has to write a statement about what they're doing and, and, and how they're running their operation with a commitment to this climate action and adaptation plan. So this thing permeates uh, uh, City Hall. Oh, what it is, by the way, is it's the plan is to eliminate greenhouse gas emissions from city operations completely by 2050 and from the entire community, uh, entire community of Columbia by 2060. So you can see how in the city of Columbia, a document is produced like this is very, it's very professionally, you know, it looks very professional. It's got this goal. It's totally permeated the city of Columbia's operations. So now she's traveling the world uh, telling people what she got done here in Columbia. Brian, have you noticed how much cooler it's been since they enacted that? I have, yes. It's a really much more comfortable. I am so grateful to her. Me too. Yeah. All right, let me move on because I had a conversation with the head of the CPOA uh, this week about uh, asset forfeiture. I hate, Mike, I hate asset forfeiture. Yeah, for sure. Um, but, you know, it seems to me that, and I'm reading your piece at Como Buzz, it's a great piece, so it's not going to stop them from seizing property. They're just not going to be able to keep it. Well, so if you, when the feds come in, so it's not unusual at all for local police to kick a case uh, over to uh, uh, ATF or something like that. When they seize funds, the way this all works is eventually those funds work their way back to the municipality uh, to, to where the case originated. So... So Columbia, the Columbia Police Department, gets a payment annually. Some years they don't get one. This year they got $85,000 that comes from these funds uh, that just gets kind of like passed down to them from the feds seizing these, this, this you know, theoretically criminal money uh, that they're authorized to do, which is the controversy. But what's not particularly contra- controversial is, is the city can decide, well, we don't want the money, which is what some activists are suggesting. It's like blood money. We shouldn't take it. Uh, the city council just says, well, we can take it or not. We might as well take it. And they've been taking it for years. But they haven't been spending it because every time they go to spend it, 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 it re-brings up the, the controversy every time. The last time they went to, they suggested spending it was uh, last year. They were going to buy this FUSIS surveillance system with it. They haven't spent any of it since 2018. They bought a, a, a canine in a kennel. So what's happened is $400,000 is piled up and it's sitting there waiting to be used. It's not in the budget. Uh, often, if, if in mid-year they have a need, they'd come to the city council and uh, get approval to, to spend some of it. So that's been going on for a lot of years. What just happened, what caused the controversy is the mayor created this office. She wants to create this new office of uh, violence prevention, uh, which is a, a vehicle, is recognized as a vehicle uh, around the country where, you know, now now some of this police money goes there and then it's in turn passed back to different nonprofits or community operations that have different ideas on how to fight crime. So what happened here is she's trying to get this off the ground 
And at the meeting to, uh, last Monday, they said, hey, look, we got $400,000 here. We can use that as money to help fund our uh, Office of Community Violence. And that's caused the police and Matt Nichols and the uh, Columbia Police Officers Association to kind of put their hand up and say, hey, hang on a second here. That's money that's been used for fighting crime. That's money that's been used by the police department all along. And you're going to take that and put it into this uh, this dubious office, which we think is a dubious office. Pretty much everybody does. Part of the, add into the bureaucracy, and now you're going to use that to fund some uh, nonprofit violence intervention program that you may or may not have going on. That's the essence of the controversy. Which will only, that group will only get bigger and bigger. Kind of like her other office uh, before she it's was Sustainability, mayor. yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it'll, and it'll just get out of hand. If you want to know what's going on in town, and I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, uh, you can listen to the radio, you can watch TV, but they only get a couple of minutes to give information out. And then you go to a commercial break or you move on to programming, whatever it is. But if you go to Como Buzz with one Z, dot com, you're not restrained. You're not constrained. You can read the entire article, get all the facts, all the details. It's so much better than uh, just getting one electronic source. It is a great uh, newspaper. Before I let you go, uh, who's your guest on Sunday? The sheriff. I got some news coming uh, that I can't, you can't push me to talk about. I'm sworn to uh, uh, kind of withhold until tomorrow afternoon. There's some kind of interesting news coming out of Boone County. Uh, and I'm bringing the sheriff on. Uh, he, he's going to be a big guest on uh, Sunday morning. Well, I've seen the guy. He's not that big. Yeah, he's, a, he's, a, he's got a pretty good story to tell. He's going to do some expansion out there. And uh, he's got, they got some pretty grandiose plans uh, for some expansion out there that, that uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, and uh, it's going to get off the ground this afternoon, and I'm going to have a story on it this afternoon. And I'll be talking about it on the radio tomorrow and talking with the sheriff, Dwayne K- Carey, about it on uh, Sunday on, the, on the, uh, Com- uh, Columbia Buzz uh, on the Eagle, 8 o'clock. <laughs> I tried to get it. I tried to get you to give me a little. I, I got a little bit. I'm a little new at this, Gary. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. All right. Mike Murphy, Como Buzz with 1Z.com. Up against the clock, take a quick break. Dave Rowland is next. Should election authorities publish the records of individual votes? What? That's next on The Gary Nolan Show. Think Tank Thursday wouldn't be the same. Without the guy who has the fire in the belly to fight for your freedom. That's Dave Rowland. Um, MoFreedom.org. Uh, and uh, by the way, Dave, thank you for uh, guest hosting for me while I was on vacay. Appreciate it. I'm always happy to do that, Gary. It's a, it's a fun time coming on and interacting with the listeners. And, and so I, I enjoy it whenever I get the opportunity. And, I, and we are thrilled that you do. Um, I am, I'm going to start off with, should election authorities publish the records of individual votes? A piece of the Cato uh, website by Walter Olson, and no. Well, if you read the piece that Walter wrote, he distinguishes between cast vote records, which are summaries of the choices that voters made, and the actual digital image of the ballot itself. And he points out in this article that um, states all over the country are starting to change their transparency laws to make clear that citizens should indeed have access to the cast vote records, but not have access to the ballot images. Missouri has drawn a similar line in its um, in its election-related laws where they say that 
the the processed ballot uh, data in electronic form, or rather the, the processed ballot materials in electronic form are off limits, but that's the distinction that Walter is pointing out. The processed ballot materials are these images of the ballots themselves, and one of the things he points out is sometimes people write notes to themselves on the ballot, sometimes they sign their ballots, um, so that if that information was made available to the public, then you could actually tie um, the ballot to an, a, the person who cast it, and that violates the secrecy of the ballot. Nobody wants that. Um, but when we're talking about the cast vote records, um, as long as there is not that risk that you're going to reveal who cast their vote for whom, um, then there's really no reason that this information shouldn't be available to the public. And in fact, it's a really good idea to make this information available to the public because it will either reveal problems that are taking place in the elections. In other words, if there is fraud taking place, making this information available to the public will make it more likely that we will uncover fraud. How will that or, work? How, how will that uncover fraud? So one of the things that a lot of people, one of the concerns that a lot of people have raised, especially in the last seven years or so, is that when an election takes place, they feel like the election authorities are not necessarily being transparent about how they draw their conclusions about who legitimately won the election. So election authorities are required to do audits of uh, the voting process that are supposed to guarantee the validity of the outcome, but that typically happens in a very obscure way. It happens outside of the view of of the voters and so essentially it boils down to the election authorities saying trust us we've looked this over and we find that we have done nothing wrong and if you make this information transparent to the public then all of a sudden it's no more a question of them saying you've got to trust us it is the citizens having the opportunity to verify or to challenge uh, what they've been told by the election authority. And so, you know, we're, we're litigating this case down in Springfield right now where a citizen asked for cast vote records. And um, it's unclear whether Shane Scholler, the Greene County clerk, who is also a candidate for Secretary of State, um, is going to produce these records. He's kind of indicated that he wants to, and yet he hasn't. Um, and so... We believe that, that this sort of information is already supposed to be produced under Missouri law, um, which is why we're in the case. But one of the things that we've pointed out about this case is it's important to reassure citizens about the validity of the elections that they're taking part in. And the best way to do that is more transparency. We can never go wrong by allowing people to point specifically to the data that's that's already been gathered and say, here's where I think we've missed fraud that took place, or where we can say, you know what, there actually is no evidence that fraud took place. Um, transparency is the solution to this rather than just relying on government officials to, uh, to do the right thing and to properly enforce the laws. I don't know, Dave. I trust the government. 
<laughs> Clearly, that, that that's a recurring theme with you, right? Yeah, yeah. People hear me say that all, all the time. Oh, Lord, no, they don't. They've never heard me say that. All right. Uh, that's very interesting. And, uh, you know, what do you think is the likelihood that uh, that this uh, gets resolved in a way that uh, benefits voters? I think the likelihood is high. Um, it's a really weird situation, though, because like I said, Shane Scholler has said all the right things publicly. And we have been engaged in conversations for months upon months now trying to nail down what's called a consent judgment where the parties agree, okay, this is the way this case is supposed to come out. Um, but I cannot get them to enter a final agreement on this. I actually had to uh, send a message to the attorney representing the Greene County clerk this morning saying, hey, where are we at on this? Because... I feel like we've been on the one yard line for probably five or six months now, and we just can't seem to push the ball across the goal line. Um, and so, you know, either we, we are going to have an agreement that's going to be really good for Missouri voters, or I'm going to have to start filing some additional motions, in which case I think we will ultimately end up with an with a judgment that'll be good for Missouri voters. But um, yeah, it, it's just a question of, do they want to continue to fight or do they want to accept that um, that we've got the correct reading of the law? Time will tell. You'll prevail. You're pretty good. you got a pretty good batting record. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, firm urges end to $100 fee to contest Peninsula speeding tickets. So I, I get a, a speeding ticket and uh, I want to contest it because I don't think I was guilty of speeding. I have to pay $100 in order to go to court? Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. You have to pay just for the ability to show up in court, which is certifiably insane, right? You, what if it's like a $75 ticket or a $50 ticket? That's exactly the point, Gary. Like, that's why they've imposed this fee is because so many people, most people will look at it and say, well, even if I don't think I did anything wrong, it's going to cost me more to fight than it is just to pay the ticket. Let's pay the ticket, which, again, that's why they've imposed this. But the deeper problem here is is policing for profit. And we talk about this all the time. This, by the way, is an IJ situation. Excuse me. An IJ situation, the Institute for Justice, um, has sent a warning letter to this city in Ohio telling them, uh, you can't do this. This is a due process violation. Um, but part of the other reason that I thought that this was so interesting is it, it mirrors so much what we were dealing with in Edgar Springs with Rebecca Varney's case. Edgar Springs was doing very much the same thing. They were issuing tons of tickets. And by the way, let, let me explain a little bit more about this little town in Ohio. When I say little town, 536 residents. I'm familiar with Peninsula. Yeah. Small town. They have issued 8,900 speeding tickets this year. Every time I go through there, I have the urge to speed. It's uh, it, You can't help no, yourself. Oh, don't. Absolutely don't. Yeah, but... <laughs> But yeah, so they've, they've issued all of these speeding tickets worth a total of about $1.3 million. Um, and so this clearly is a racket. They're, they're policing for profit, and uh, it should not be allowed, not there, not here in Missouri either. Well, in Ohio, you're not allowed to police for profit. Uh, there is a city in, uh, in just outside Cleveland called Lindale, 
and Interstate 71 goes through there, they've got maybe a half mile of road, uh, and there would be a cop hiding under the bridge uh, and writing tickets all the time. And they stopped them uh, because it wasn't being issued to protect anybody. Uh, The tickets were being issued to raise funds. All right, quick break. We're going to be back. Uh, We've got uh, a whole bunch more on the table. Mo Free Speech coming up. This is The Gary Nolan Show. I trust the government. Oh, you dirty rat. You took that out of context. You're going to haunt me with that forever. Oh, man, you got to be so careful when Brian Hansen is uh, producing and engineering a program for you. (laughs) That is just so unfair. Why? Uh, Just answer the phone and put Dave (laughs) Rowland back on. Because the show wouldn't be the same on a Think Tank Thursday without him. All right, there we go. Now we got Dave. Well, no, we don't quite have Dave. Now we have Dave. There he is. Sorry about that. Accidentally got disconnected. Oh, no, no. We did that on purpose. (laughs) Just uh, to keep you busy so you wouldn't go to sleep. Mo, uh, Missouri free speech advocates, uh, what are they what are they pushing for? What's going on? So we've talked before about this prior restraint problem going on over in St. Louis where um, a journalist got some information about a defendant who has been charged with murdering a police officer. And she wanted to publish a story about what she found, um, but a court intervened and said, nope. Neither you nor your newspaper is allowed to publish anything uh, about this information that you gathered. Now, if they got this information perfectly legally, the the court system made a mistake. They accidentally put something online that they should not have put online, but the journalist didn't do anything wrong in obtaining the document. She acted perfectly lawfully. And um, and so now you've got this court saying you're not allowed to publish your story. And they took it up to the Missouri Court of Appeals. And, you know, I, uh, I have helped to launch this new organization called Mo Free Speech. And we decided we wanted to weigh in and provide the Court of Appeals with some additional guidance on this. The, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch has a very good attorney representing them and presented what I think are certainly correct arguments about the First Amendment and why the First Amendment prohibits the court from doing what it did here. But that brief that the St. Louis Post-Dispatch filed didn't say anything at all about the Missouri Constitution. And one of the things that I always try and remind people is that the Missouri Constitution is in many ways more extensive in its protections for liberty than even the Federal Bill of Rights. And so when we have a situation where the Missouri Constitution provides greater protections for liberty, we ought to make use of that. And and we need to bring court's attention to that. So we filed a brief uh, last week that pointed out, you know what, here's what the Missouri Constitution says. And and I want to quote the actual language of our state constitution so people are aware of it. It says, well, so we know the First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law respecting the freedom of speech, right? Right. So with with the Missouri Constitution, it says no law shall be passed impairing the freedom of speech, no matter by what means communicated, that every person shall be free to say, write, or publish, or otherwise communicate whatever he will on any subject being responsible for all abuses of that liberty. So 
one of the things that we pointed out in our brief is that clearly the people of Missouri, when they first ratified this constitutional provision, they knew what the First Amendment said, and they could have chosen just to mirror the First Amendment. They did not. They went much further. Their explanation of the right that they intended to protect was much more elaborate and more extensive than we have in the First Amendment. Furthermore, when Missouri courts interpreted this uh, provision way back more than 100 years ago, they were presented the question of whether courts could enjoin, that is, step in and prevent something from happening, whether they could enjoin people from making certain statements or publishing certain statements. And they said, invariably, our Constitution absolutely prohibits the courts of this state from preventing somebody from speaking or sharing an idea. Now, if they say something that ends up causing harm to somebody else, the courts may be allowed to consider whether what was said constituted an abuse of the freedom of speech. But what we cannot do is prevent the statement from being made at the outset. The Missouri Constitution focuses on remedying harms caused by abuses of speech. It does not tolerate prevention of speech at the outset. And so we wanted to file our brief just to make sure that these issues and these important points were in front of the Court of Appeals as they were considering whether to intervene and to uh, undo the gag order that the, uh, that the circuit court has placed on the Post-Dispatch and journalist Katie Cole in this particular situation. So one of the takeaways um, is that you have so much free time that in addition to your law practice... <laughs> In addition to filling in for me when I'm on vacation, in addition to uh, MoFreedom.org, you have now started Mo Free Speech. Well, I had a lot of good help on that. There, there are a handful of really brilliant attorneys that uh, are working with me on this. So, so it is not. It's not my pet organization. I am simply part of a broader group working on Mo Free Speech. But let me let me point out. Um, it really has been quite busy lately. Ever since uh, the, the news broke about winning the Edgar Springs case, we have had a flood of potential case requests. I mean, I stopped counting at about 20 just in the first three weeks of this month. Um, and, and so I know that there are a lot of people that are that may be frustrated right now that they've submitted a potential case request and um, we're just not going to be able to take it on. But But, I mean, that's an indication of just how many of these requests that we get. Um, we are constantly, uh, and, and I'm happy that people want to come to us and, and ask us to take on these cases, but, but that kind of a volume, you know, we're never going to be able to take on that many cases, and we've got to be very selective about which ones we choose. So, yeah, we've, we've definitely had our hands full, uh, especially for the last month or so here. All right. I want to move on, um, but uh, somebody has a question for you, and I'm tempted to take that. Uh, and then I'll come back and uh, talk about uh, gun ads and Flagstaff. Uh, they, uh, these anti-gunners. Uh, let me just go to the phones and get Rick on here because he is on topic. At least I think so. Rick, good morning. Good morning. I am a contributor to Dave Rowland. I wanted to con uh, tell all the listeners he's one of the few people 
that doesn't give you 12,000 solicitations a year. And in fact, I actually almost have to beg them to take the money. No, I'm just kidding about that. <laughs> but I would suggest people, when they are making their contributions this year, consider him. I don't work for him. I'm not associated with him at all. I, I try not to be associated with him either. <laughs> but I fully support what you're saying. Uh, you know, if we had to pay Dave... To go defend our our freedom uh, in many of these cities and state and in, in and around the state, uh, it would cost an arm and a leg, and it's because of donations that we're able to have him help us for free. I I think it, you know you make a really good point, Rick. Thank you. All yeah, right. thanks so much, Rick. We we appreciate that, and and I, I want to point out, um, Rick is correct. Number one, I'm a terrible fundraiser because I don't like asking people for money. I I don't like it. Um, but one of the things that I have seen, having worked in the nonprofit world for a long time, um, I feel like. I feel abused by some of the requests that I get from organizations such constantly asking for more and more money. And I know that that's how they are successful in raising their funds. But when Jennifer and I started the Freedom Center, I wanted to make sure that I was never like that. Um, and so we only very rarely send out an actual solicitation for money. And, and we just trust that when people see the work that we're doing, um, that they'll agree that it's worthwhile and that they'll voluntarily want to chip in without us having to ask. So um, that is something that we take very, very seriously is, is that we don't like to send out and just bombard people with solicitations. And so that's why I'm so thankful for you, Gary, that you do um, very regularly encourage people to donate by going to mofreedom.org slash donate. I am up against the clock. I am torn because when we come back, we're going to have maybe 10 minutes total. Uh, and I'm I want to go over this SEC uh, case in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, and, and at the same time, I also want to talk about uh, Flagstaff and uh, the gun ads. We can do both. We're going to have to work fast, and we're going to do it. Gary Nolan shows Zimmer Radio Network. It is uh, 10 minutes to 12. we got two hot stories we want to get through. I'm going to start with the quick one, uh, and that, that deals with Flagstaff and gun ads. Dave Rowland is on board to explain what's going on. Yeah, so Flagstaff, Arizona, like many cities that have airports, they allow advertising at the airport. So you get off the plane and you see, you know, uh, various businesses around that have their ads up. And you can decide while you're in town if you want to go and patronize those businesses. Uh, well, one of the businesses that had been advertising in Flagstaff was uh, a, a gun shop. And they were wanting to advertise training uh, services so that people could learn to better use their firearms. Well, some people in the city got um, you know all concerned that oh maybe this was going to be offensive. Maybe people weren't going to want to come to Flagstaff because they saw that some people might want to use their Second Amendment right to uh, to practice firearms. Um, and so they told the company, we're not going to let you advertise here anymore. Well, that's a First Amendment problem. And so they got sued uh, by the Goldwater Institute, which is kind of the Freedom Center's parallel in Arizona. And rather than continuing to fight in court where they were bound to lose, they were absolutely 100% going to lose this case, 
they said, well, you know what? Let's just change our policy. So now uh, we're not going to allow anyone to advertise at the airport except for our own homegrown um, uh, advertising agency. Basically, it's the the uh, city promotional um, advertising group called Discover Flagstaff. But the thing is, is that just represents a city-funded organization that is still choosing, picking and choosing who they're going to advertise. And that could present problems all of its own. So basically Flagstaff thought that maybe they were going to be getting out of a constitutional fix by just stopping advertisements from uh, private groups altogether, and they may have created an entirely different constitutional problem. So what's the solution, Gary? Just let everyone have their opportunity to buy these advertising uh, opportunities. You know, you've got these signs that are already there. Uh, Let people put up their money to advertise any legal service that they want, and then just let it go. If people have problems with that, they're going to have problems with that. I think the vast majority of people uh, will simply be happy to have more information about the services that are available in the community. Um, But we'll, we'll see if Flagstaff decides that they're going to persist with this this new potential constitutional problem but um the solution really should be as plain as the nose on their face just sitting right in front of them and that's just open it up to everybody nope it won't be that easy i guarantee you uh, <laughs> probably not they just uh, they're relentless and they're uh, anti-gun Common push sense is too much to ask for yes way, way too much all right here is the case that i am most excited about uh, the justices are divided over the SEC's ability to impose fines in administrative proceedings. I talked about this briefly earlier in the week. Um, you've got an extra constitutional group yeah, kind of holding court in their own little courthouse and, uh, and, and, and fining and punishing people. I, I don't like that. Yeah, so so this um, this agency was created decades ago, and the uh, part of its goal was allegedly consumer protection. Um, but the problem here is that what they are accusing people and trying people for, in uh, a very real sense, is simply garden variety fraud. It's always been illegal to perpetrate fraud to tell people one thing in order to get money from them when in fact you know that you're not going to do what you promised to do, that you, you know, you're selling them a false bill of goods, that sort of thing. That's just fraud. Yep. And so the Securities and Exchange Commission has been having this kind of parallel judiciary that is entirely in-house. Um, the people who sit in judgment are not Article Three judges uh, that, that are uh, responsible under the Constitution, um, and you also do not get a jury of your peers in the proceedings in front of the agency. And so this guy sued, and he said, "Now wait a minute. Um, the Seventh Amendment to the U.S. Constitution says that I have a right to a jury trial, and because you're forcing me to go through this agency proceeding instead of having a civil case in open court, I'm being denied my Seventh Amendment." right to trial. Um, Part of the problem that we've got here, though, Gary, is there is a, a, oh, I think it's about a 50-year-old case called Atlas Roofing Company 
where effectively the United States Supreme Court considered that question and rejected the challenge. So they said, you know what, we think it's perfectly okay if Congress wants to create this offense that is basically a mirror image of traditional fraud and requires you to try that case in front of the agency instead of in the regular court system. And so at the oral arguments yesterday, you had Justices Kagan, Jackson, and Sotomayor who were like full-throatedly saying, we've already decided this issue. Atlas Roofing closed the book on this question and we do not need to reopen it now. Three of the other justices, uh, namely Justice Thomas, Justice Gorsuch, and Justice Alito, seemed pretty plainly open to overruling Atlas Roofing or figuring out a way to say that, well, Atlas Roofing doesn't really apply in this case. It is more difficult to pin down where Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Kavanaugh, and uh, Justice Bryant, uh, uh, Barrett uh, are going to come down on this. They didn't really tip their hands quite so much. But I think the conventional wisdom is that at least two of those will go with uh, the more conservative justices and say this is a Seventh Amendment problem and therefore uh, you cannot have at least these kinds of proceedings in front of the agency that will not necessarily eliminate all of the functions of the SEC. It will not necessarily eliminate all of the in-house proceedings. So, for example, they might be able to say, well, Congress created this particular kind of offense, and it is not a mirror image of uh, a traditional fraud prosecution. Therefore, we are able to handle that within the agency instead of the courts. That's a possibility. Um, but, But for now, it seems like the SEC is going to be set to be reined in uh, with some severity, and that is a good thing. Well, the let me, Amendment matters. I agree. Is there is there a, a a larger impact for the for the government than just um, the SEC? It depends on how broadly the court wants to decide this case. My sense from the oral argument is that there is not currently an appetite to issue a very broad decision here. I think it's going to be narrowly decided. But if I'm wrong on that, they could decide it more broadly, and it very well could have impacts on other federal agencies and bureaus. I'm, I'm hoping that they go uh, a little bit more broadly and that they uh, they argue you can't do this. Um, I, I, you know, I could go into the economics of the uh, the depression and the stock market crash and all that uh, that uh, preceded uh, some of these uh, decisions, but we just don't have time. Dave Roland, MoFreedom.org/slash/donate. Dave, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Gary. Whatever it is in life that you want, go out and get it. Don't wait for the government to drop in your lap. You make it happen. You seize the day. Carpe diem, Gwen, baby, honey, I'm coming home.